study in the book of Acts, and we'll begin our text this morning in the 15th, uh, 15th verse of the first chapter. We'll read through the end of the chapter. You may recall last week the account of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ is given to us, and we found that the apostles, 11 of them, were there to witness the ascension and went back to the place where other disciples had been gathered, and in the 14th verse of the first chapter, we have a very brief record of their gathering, or at least of their condition. Uh, they all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and went with his brethren. And now we'll continue. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said the number of names together was about 120. Men and brethren, the scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spoke before concerning Judas, who was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained part of the, in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and fall, falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that field is called in the proper tongue, a keldama, that is to say, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric let another take. Wherefore of these men who have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And they appointed two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, who knowest the hearts of all men, show which of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now let's pray. Our Heavenly Father and our God, I would ask that we might be reminded for the purpose of our gathering that we are here to worship and adore Jesus Christ. <coughs> to know him and to love him. Precious Savior, we thank you for the great love wherewith you have loved us and did bear upon your own self our grievous and awful sins and their great penalty. 
So we worship you and we, we, we love you for that. We, I would pray, Father, that you would bring us to a place of remembrance the, of the great price that has been paid for, for us and that we are a purchased people. We're bought with a price. We do not long, any longer belong to ourselves. So, Father in heaven, grant that your spirit would be in our midst, soothing, comforting, teaching, convicting, and giving to us a spirit of worship. That Christ would be glorified here in the midst of this his church. I pray in Christ's name. I ventured last week that Peter wasn't the first pope, nor was the Church of Jerusalem the beginning of a hierarchical church. The church of Jerusalem was one in a long line of assemblies who existed apart from any religious organization. We're not reading about the formation of the Roman Catholic Church or the Greek Orthodox Church nor any of the Protestant denominations. We're reading only about uh, the uh, Church at Jerusalem, which would be the mother church for many churches which would spring from her and would continue to spring from one another until this very day. As I was reading about this and looking into particularly the circumstances surrounding the character who is named here as Judas, I was struck with the with the narrowness, I guess for lack of a better way of stating it, of the views of Jesus Christ. I was struck with them by virtue of the fact by the way, of the way he dealt with Judas himself. Most of you, I'm sure, know who Judas was. He was one of the original 12 apostles. His apostleship was valid along with the others until something happened to him. I don't know when that something happened to him or if it was a something happening, but at any rate, there was an event which occurred which changed everything as far as Judas' relationship with Jesus Christ was concerned. Judas, who was the treasurer of the group, used his proximity to Jesus to betray him. He was in a position to sell him out to the Pharisees so that he might be brought to consul and trial. And he took advantage of that position. He did it for 30 pieces of silver. I would like just to take a moment to point out to you that 30 pieces of silver was a sizable amount of money. We, we tend to think of it as some paltry amount that Christ was sold out for, for a pittance. And the fact is that 30 pieces of silver was, was a considerable amount of money in those times, considering the economies of those times. It, it represented to someone like Judith being set for life. 
enough wealth to be set for life. And so we can't accuse Judas of being silly in terms of asking too little a price. He asked a lot and he got a lot. I'm sure you also are aware that, or many of you are at least, that Judas, after he had done this dastardly deed, after the trial of our Lord, but before his crucifixion, after the trial before the priests, but before his crucifixion, Judas took the money back. He had great remorse after he had seen that Jesus was condemned. He took the money back, the 30 pieces of silver, and he said, here, take this, I do not want it. And the priest said, we cannot accept it or receive it, it is a price of blood. And as the gospel account goes, Judas took the money and threw it at their feet and walked out of the judgment hall. <coughs> After which the priest and the Sanhedrin used the money because they could not put it into the treasury to buy what is called the potter's field and what we have defined in our text as the field of blood. The story of Judas is a sad story, but since he is mentioned here in our text, I thought it would be worthwhile for us to take a moment or two to examine how it is that the Lord Jesus Christ dealt with him. Now, first of all, he made some, some very important statements about Judas. Um, and I'd like you to read them with me. And when I said that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, had a very narrow view about things, particularly as it dealt with Judas, I'd like you to look. We'll, we'll look first in the Gospel of John, the sixth chapter, if you don't mind. Now, I hope that all of you will give me that Jesus was, was a, a very wise man. I think it's important for us to understand that Jesus is God. Jesus Christ is God. We have a difficult time, however, understanding that Jesus of Nazareth willfully and willingly placed upon himself the limitations of human flesh. It's important that we, we grasp that. Jesus Christ placed upon himself, willingly took upon himself the limitations of humanity, meaning that he wasn't, even though he was God, he, for the time that he was in the flesh, was not omnipresent, means he wasn't everywhere at the same time. He wasn't omniscient. That means he didn't know all things all at the same time. And he was not omnipotent. He had limitations. He did not have all power at his disposal at all times. That does not mean to say that he is any less God because all of those things are true of him now. And all of those things were true of him before his incarnation, before the epiphany. Now, those are maybe difficult things to understand, but the reason why I said that to you was because the verse that I want to read here is, the, is a statement of our Lord's wisdom. 
he said uh, after he had preached this, this sermon about God's great sovereignty and about uh, the necessity for one taking Jesus Christ into himself in order to be a believer and many, many disciples went back verse 66 and walked no more with him and then said Jesus unto the twelve will you go away uh, also and then Simon Peter answered him and said Lord to whom shall we go thou hast the words of eternal life and we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ the son of the living God and then Jesus answered him a very strange answer he said, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. It's true that Jesus was not omniscient, but Jesus certainly knew about Judas and knew about who he was and what he was going to do. He had powers beyond mere powers of the flesh, but he didn't have total God power while he was in the flesh. But the point is, the Lord Jesus Christ said, I've chosen you twelve and one of you is a devil. And so we have a definition that our Lord placed upon Judas that I think is very difficult. Uh, it's very difficult even to attribute to the Lord Jesus Christ to, for him to, to call one of his closest associates a devil. But he did. And he did for a purpose. The purpose and the reason being that God's great grace and glory would be shown even in the actions of Judas. You have to understand something. It's very important that we understand it. All things that happen in the lives of people, especially believing people, all things, it doesn't matter what it is, all things, whether it's even in the case, it was in the case of the Lord of betrayal, all things, God has an ultimate end in view and will finally and ultimately receive glory from it. And don't ever forget that the Word of God tells us that all matters that connect to our lives ultimately will be worked out for our benefit, for our good. And while it may be very difficult to understand how that can be from our beginning position. I assure you on the basis of the promises of God that for every disappointment, every hardship, every sadness, every tragedy that befalls your life, you will at some time, at some point, look back upon it and say, there was good that came from it. My good came from this. It may be from the point of view of eternity. An interesting discussion one uh, last week at lunchtime with uh, some of my uh, co-workers. Subject came up about, uh, I don't even remember what, what the situation was. I think they were talking about the events in Waco, Texas. And, uh, and one of, uh, a man said, well, you know, I, 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 that's really where I have a difficult time understanding about God. I, I, when, when I hear about things like that, those 17 children, I, he says, I, I have trouble. I have trouble dealing with the idea of God. And he said, now I know you don't. And there were two women sitting there with, with us as well. 
And I said, um, well, I have trouble. I said, I, I, I don't have any trouble about God, but I, I have trouble sometimes understanding why these things occur. He says, yeah, but you're, you have all the answers because you're devout. I says, no, I'm not devout. I'm committed, but I'm, I'm not devout. I, I don't consider myself devout. And one of the women says, well, look, we, I mean, you, you know, you, you've been here a long time and everybody knows knows you and they know that you're a thoroughgoing Christian and that, you know, you, you, you don't, you don't grab people and rattle them and say you ought to be like me, but you live that way and people admire that and respect that. They say, yeah, but I wish you were like me. I wish you didn't believe as I did. I, I, I would love for you to, to believe and trust in Christ savingly. And I told them that. Finally, I said to him, look, the difference between you, what you believe about God, and what I believe about God is that I believe that justice will always be served. I always believe justice will be served. The problem that we have with that concept is is the same problem we have with all concepts that deal with events in eternity. We're not there yet. We don't experience them yet. We don't possess them yet. What we possess is, is what's here, what we can feel or see or smell. Or here. And since those are the things that we relate to on an everyday basis, and when tragedy or sadness or disappointment or injustice occurs, it is our sense that we we want we want justice done. We we want out of the sadness. We want we want those who hurt us to be to be chastened. We want we want we want we want we want fairness. And I assure you that fairness is God's business. God is a God of fairness. He's a God of justice. So what happened with Judas? Who, by the way, it, it, we, we probably should look in the Gospel of Matthew a little bit more of background in Judas, and then, then I'll make some comments. In the 26th chapter of Matthew, if you just turn there, the Lord Jesus Christ makes another statement about Judas. In the 20th verse, this was the, the scene here is the, the, the Last Supper, the Last Passover. And they're all there. All 12 of the apostles and our Lord, they're all there. And when the even was come, he sat down with the 12... And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him. But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born, then Judas, who betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? And he said unto him, Thou hast said. I don't know how you, how you find the character of Judas, but it, 
these whole, all of these events and circumstances are very fascinating. Uh, to me, at least, I, I'm, I'm t I, I was really taken up by them, by this, this character of Judas. I had a very dear friend who was, uh, I, I think he, when he died, he was a Christian, but uh, he, he was an amateur poet. He was a vanity poet. He wrote poems and had them published and paid to have them published, so we call those vanity poets. But he was a good guy, and, and he wrote some pretty good poetry. The centerpiece of the one book of poetry that he had published was about Judas Iscariot. And he wrote this very lengthy poem about Judas and was very sympathetic toward him. Uh, Judas, to him, was a victim. And Judas, to me, was not a victim. It is difficult maybe even for some of us impossible to reconcile the idea that Judas was ordained to do what he did and have someone like Jesus Christ say of him, be better for you if you'd never been born. But you have to understand, and I think it's important that we understand that all of us, all of our lives, I'm not a fatalist, I don't believe in fate, but I certainly do believe in the, in the omnipotent, ordaining hand of God. I would hate to think that my life from the time I was born to the time that I depart would be a continuous series of happenstances, coincidences, under no one's control. It frightens me to think that I am charged to be responsible as the master of my life from the beginning of it to the end with no plan laid out for me at all except the one that I lay out for myself. Oh, I know it is that I and, and, and you, we all think that we are controlling our lives. We make decisions every day. We get up. We do whatever it is we do when we get up. We get the kids ready. We go to work. Whatever it is that we do, we do... Uh, based upon our decisions and upon the actions of our own wills. But I can assure you that if you're a child of God, God has arranged an entire plan for your life that will ultimately bring you to glory and will give him glory. And if there is anything that is hopeful for a child of God, it's that he is ordained unto life. Just as it may be despairing for a man like Judas that he was ordained unto death, for you and I, we can rejoice in the fact that we have been ordained unto life. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Prince of Life. But back to Judas. The Bible says the devil entered into him. And then he did what he did. I'll admit I don't know a lot about the devil and I don't know a lot about possession. I don't know a lot about demon possession. I know nothing about devil possession. But the Bible says that the devil entered into Judas. So I had to ask myself the question, how do you do that? 
Why Judas instead of Thomas? Thomas was a doubter. Or instead of someone else? How, how did the devil do that? Then I thought about myself. And while it is true that I cannot thankfully recall all of my misdeeds of all of my life, I can't remember all of my sins. I do remember some. And there are some things that I've done that, things that I've said, that I truly regret. I remember them. So when I was thinking about Judas, I thought about myself, and I, I, I said of myself, well, why did I do that? There are things that I've done that are really contrary to my, really to, to, to the way I basically am. And I, and I have to ask myself, well, why did I do that? Why did Judas do this? Why, why did the devil enter into him? Well, the devil entered into Judas because Judas was a ready vessel for him to occupy. That's why. Something happened to Judas along the way whereby his personal financial well-being became the driving force of his life. And when one's personal financial well-being becomes paramount in one's life, he will do a lot of things to gain it that he would not have ordinarily done until that became the driving force of his life. Did Judas do what he wanted to do or did the devil make him do it? Judas did exactly what he wanted to do. Judas exercised his will and his greed fulfill his desires. Can God be blamed for Judas' betrayal? No, God cannot be blamed. It would have been good if Judas had never been born. Woe to the one who does the betraying. One has been ordained unto that post in life. But never mind, Judas acted freely and willfully. Would the devil have entered into Judas if Judas had not been filled with desire for financial and material gain? The answer is no, he would not have. But the fact is, he did have those desires. And therefore, he was fertile ground to be occupied by satanic influences and forces. So much for Judas. He is a pathetic historical character. His remorse, how do we address that? It's impossible for one to go too far. Over the edge. Well, must be because Judas did. He went over the edge. Mm -hmm. 
Now, I don't profess to know all the answers about people like Judas. I have enough trouble with answers about my own life and my own self. But I do know this. I know that in the time of our Lord as well as in our time today, the very same nature that possessed Judas possesses us. The very same Satan that was extant then, walking about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, is the same Satan who today walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may desire. And that in itself should be enough of an encouragement and warning for God's people to guard their steps and their pathways. Now I'd like to talk to you about the business that this church conducted on this particular occasion. This little church, 120 strong, which was soon to be thousands strong, was gathered together in Jerusalem, and they were coming together during very difficult, perilous times. I'm sure you know that there was no great sympathy for followers of Christ. In fact, most of the world in which these believers lived, the Jewish world, were convinced that Jesus of Nazareth was dead. They didn't think he was alive. And therefore, anyone who would be a follower of his, who would name his name, would be following a dead man. And they thought that was crazy. Furthermore, it was the intention of the Sanhedrin to stamp out all vestiges of followers of Christ. They were, they were facing very difficult times. They were facing intense persecution, ostracization from their society. There were not many of them. And outside of their own faith and their own recognition and realization that Jesus Christ, their Lord, lived and he is the Lord of life, there was nothing else to sustain them. But that's enough. Throughout all of Christian history, when believers and thus churches were the strongest, was when they were the most persecuted. Did you know that? I'm sure you did know that. And I do not believe, I truly do not believe, I, I can... You, you don't need to go back thousands of years in history. Just go back a few centuries. Or a few hundred centuries. And you will be struck with the idea and the notion that, by and large, God's people who endured and survived and were the ones who were responsible for defining and bringing a, 
a gospel of grace and salvation through, through a period of terrible darkness in human history where those who were persecuted by others who bore the name Christian as well. I'm sure you know that. That shouldn't be a new revelation to you. There have always been those who finally in the 17th century in England were called separatists. There have always been separatists. Always those who separated themselves from the established religion of the time in order that they might contend for a pure faith and a pure doctrine. Always been those, and, and that's what these, these were, these men and women, these 120. What's happened today, what I believe has happened to, to today, and, and I think that we, uh, even this church, members of it, are victims of it, is a, perhaps not in our case so much a watered-down doctrine, but certainly, by and large, and because of the lack of persecution that exists today and because of the embrace of society at large of Christianity, even though the government is opposed to Christianity and its edicts, the fact is that, that there are lots and lots and lots of professing Christians today. Well, I rejoice in the fact if they are truly saved that there are that many of them I am frightened at the very idea that so many of us, if there are that many of us, live in a world which is, by leaps and bounds, becoming more decadent and immoral by the moment. And so you have to wonder if there are, if we are so many of, if there are so many of us, what's wrong with us? Why aren't we making a difference? So I paid attention to this church at Jerusalem and I, I thought, well, they, they, they sure made a difference. Didn't take them long to make a tremendous difference. And, and you know what they did that the Christ, 20th century Christianity absolutely does not do? Or I, let me put it this way. You know what they didn't do that 20th century Christianity does do? They did not. I assure you, they did not see their mission as anything but strengthening the body and evangelizing. That was their mission. They didn't see any other aspect but that. Strengthening the body of believers in their locality and evangelizing because that is the mission of a church. The mission is not to picket the mission is not to elect enough senators and congressmen to change the direction of this country and get it. The mission is to strengthen the lives of the saints of God in Christ Jesus and evangelize. That's the mission. And I I'm telling you that it's gone. The mission is there. It is unbelievable the number of extra church Christian organizations who are lobbying groups and pressure groups and picketing groups and political groups that exist today all under the uh, uh, of, of, of 
born-again Christians. They're all in charge of these things. And it's not making any difference. Is your life different? Are you impacted? Are you, are you living a holier life because of all these other things that are going on? Absolutely not. And in fact is, if you're going to live a holier life, you should live a holy life because you should disdain the things that are in the world, not embrace them. You should set them aside, not become active in them. You should say, this isn't for me because I am a, I'm a Christian. I, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm patterning my life after the life of the saints of God of the first century because they were not political activists. They were not reformers. They were only evangelizers and teachers. That's what they were. And it doesn't make any difference where you go or what, what religious organization or church you go to and, and, and making a concession for the moment that there are lots of churches in the greater Cleveland area, uh, I, including our own, and the impact upon one, the, the personal lives. I'm talking about, I'm not talking about how a group of people can impact someone. That's not what I'm talking about because people can impact people. Eh? That's not the problem. You, you, can get a, you can go any place and if the people are really nice and wonderful and they embrace you and make you feel good, you're impacted. And, and, and you, but that's not the kind of impact I'm talking about. It would be far better if you had one dear close friend who was in Christ Jesus who could encourage you in the, your belief system and in your faith and in Christ and you would grow in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ and, and live your life for Christ and disdain the world, that's, that's really what a Christian is supposed to be. You know what the hallmark of Evangelical Christianity today is based upon, you know, you know what it's all based upon? It's based on experience. Experience is not truth. And you remember that. Experience is not truth. You can talk to any number of Christians today who will wax eloquently about their experiences, but experience is not truth. Experience doesn't interpret truth. Truth defines experience. Your experience, if it's from heaven, must be defined by the truth of God's word. Otherwise, it's bogus. It's an experience, but it's not a Holy Spirit experience. The Lord Jesus Christ himself said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. He said nothing about your experience making you free. When the Lord's church meets and her members, when they are unassembled, the business must be spiritual business. We are not interested in societal reformation. 
we as a body of believers cannot be interested in political reformation. We must be interested in building up our members in Christ Jesus. And finally, we need to, as these in that church, early church at Jerusalem did, demonstrate to the world in which we live 